and welcome to Extra Milestone, a monthly spin-off series of the Cinema Holics podcast where we celebrate a noteworthy film anniversary. These are the films that we believe went the extra mile in their filmmaking, making them extra milestones. I'm your host as always, John Agroni, but just because I'm your host doesn't mean my body is filled with acid, and I have some terrific co-hosts joining me for this discussion of Alien, which celebrates its 40th anniversary in the month of June 2019. First up, he is my usual co-host on Cinemaholics, plus he's a staff writer for Cinemaholics.com, and I'm starting to suspect his blood is made of milk. It's Will Ashton. (laughs) Ah. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I like that I'm also a robot (laughs) or an android. (laughs) You you get to make your own decisions, Will. You have free will? Uh. Next, he is our film history (laughs) buff on this show, a staff writer of Cinemaholics.com, where he heads up our Movie of the Week column, and I hear he's the only one of us getting full shares. It's Sam Nostromo. I I mean, Nolan. Sam Nolan. Yes, that's me, uh, and I'm not allowed to disclose anything about the shares, but hi, everyone. Glad to be back once again. I'm back home in, in, the, in the good old Rocky Mountains, So, and I also lost part of a tooth yesterday, so if my voice sounds any different, that's why. Tooth expendable, I see. What, what happened? Uh, I was, I was, I bit down on a particularly crispy slice of bacon and my, part of my tooth just broke off. Which tooth? Uh, I don't don't know. Whatever. I'm not a dentist. (laughs) What time of day was it? What do you want to know, Will? Damn, Jackie, I'm not a dentist. (laughs) I want to pitch your pain and this is a podcast. All right. Well, usually, usually it is just the three of us. And as you can hear, it's as dysfunctional as ever, but we are so happy to have a fourth chair in this extra milestone. She is also a staff writer of cinemahawks.com. So this is a real writer's room episode and her bylines can be found all over the web from Polygon and film school rejects to girls on top and the playlist. Oh, hold on she'll she'll be here in a second oh oh, she's going back for the cat for some reason see she's a cat person and oh she's here it's julia tady hi it's me i had to put the cat down but we're all good to go now i think you said earlier if we hear a cat meowing it's just jones it's just jones yeah he's stowed away and we're ready to head out back to earth but we're in the spatial plane right now (laughs) all right well last month we talked about the 400 blows this is week or not week five month five of extra miles i always forget this is a monthly thing so stay tuned toward the end of this episode to hear what we are considering talking about for july of 2019 we have a ton of options and as always the listeners are going to help us decide on them and i'm really excited to talk about alien this is uh there are a few firsts i'm just going to cover a couple of them and i have i just know sam is aware of even more firsts uh besides like they're very niche ones but okay so this is our first film that's in color which is i was surprised to see we've done only black and white films so far this is also our first it's also our first sci-fi film it's not really our first genre what i'm just i'm just i'm I'm being your hype man oh hyping me up thank you sam yeah and uh it's also (laughs) get ready to hype this up it's a film in the 70s we haven't done a 70s film yet tail end of the 70s yeah man We've only done the 50s so far, except for our very first episode, we did a film from the 30s. So, Julia, you're here when things are just getting more and more modern, which is which is good. We need that. Excited. All right. So, here is what we are going to be doing for this extra milestone. This is the basic overview we always do. We're going to talk about our first experiences with this film. We're going to discuss the background information into what went into 
alien developing into what it is today and uh, everything that went into the production, basically. Then we're going to dive into the film's overall legacy. What did critics think about this film when it first came out? And what do people mostly think today? Now, this is going to be a spoiler-free discussion until you start hearing Julia Tatey begin discussing the plot synopsis. Once you hear the plot synopsis starting, all bets are off. We will be discussing plot details throughout the entirety of Alien for the rest of the discussion, because we're going to be talking about our specific thoughts and takeaways from all different parts of this movie. So you have time to listen. If you haven't watched Alien yet, maybe you're not convinced yet for some reason, and you just want to, you want to know some things first. We're going to talk about it, of course, but then, of course, we want you to watch or hopefully rewatch Alien by the time you're listening to the rest of this episode. Now, let's get into it. Let's talk about our first experiences with this film. And, oh, who am I going to start? with i think i think we're gonna start with will ashen he's been a little quiet because i i don't know if he has ulterior motives or something like that but will (laughs) okay what was your first experience watching alien how many times have you seen it since and then for this episode how did you rewatch it um i believe i'm trying to remember if i watched it in high school or college i think i watched it early in college because i remember i was watching the alien movies leading up to prometheus in 2012 so I'm pretty sure if I saw it was might have been like the summer, uh, like in between uh, high school and college is when I saw it. So that probably would have been like 2011 or 2012. Yeah. So I can't remember exactly, but I know it was quite a while ago. Uh, and this is the only the second time I've seen it since. Okay. Okay. And how did how did you watch? Did you watch the theatrical cut for this or the director's cut? And how did you watch it? Uh, I didn't even know there was a director's cut. So I watched oh. theatrical both times. Ooh, interesting. Okay, well, we'll we'll have to. There, there's one way you can find out if you saw the director's cup. We'll get into that later. Okay. Yes. Next up, Sam Noland. First experience. That's me. How many times since? Uh, first experience is a funny one, and I didn't even I hadn't thought about it this in years uh, until we decided that we were doing this episode. First time I ever saw the movie. Technically, I think I must have been like. 12 or 13 years old. Um, and I wasn't really into movies yet, but I was sort of like, it was sort of a hobby. And so my dad was trying to recommend all sorts of stuff, uh, all sorts of like his favorite movies and stuff and said, all right, Sam, we're going to watch a movie called Alien. Uh, and here's the, here's the deal I'm going to make, I'm going to make with you. If, if, uh, watch the first 30 minutes of it, and if you want to keep watching, then you can. And if not, then you can leave. So my dad made me watch Alien at gunpoint, basically at verbal gunpoint. <laughs> well, gunpoint. Uh, Sounds like he was being very free with you and being very giving you a lot of choices. Well, we look at the world in very different ways, Jonathan. <laughs> but regardless, uh, watch the 30 minutes. Weirdly enough, didn't like it that first time. It wasn't until years later that I decided, yeah, I'm gonna. I've I've heard so many people love this movie and. Uh, let me see. Let me see what it's all about. And it, as it turns out, I loved it. And I've seen it, I think, five times since, uh, <laughs> just in the past like half decade or so. And I, have, I actually got to see it in a theater last year as part of a horror cinema class I was taking or course I was taking. Yeah. So that was very, that was very fun. I loved that. I mean, I think it's pretty. It makes sense if you were twelve and the first thirty minutes didn't really grab you because they're intentionally very mundane. Very in a way that I feel right, which isn't a bad thing. I, I appreciate that it does that, but I imagine for a twelve-year-old, uh, even a sophisticated one such as yourself, Sam, I, oh, I imagine well, that might be uh, a bit strange. When I was twelve, Will. That's true. I guess <laughs> I, I might be overstepping myself, but I like to think I have a better understanding. I have a good understanding, at least. Yeah, fair enough. Also, you you mentioned something. This is also our first horror. I can't believe I didn't 
mention that. Oh, and yes. first, this is like the first blockbuster I want to say. Like, it's the first movie that we're doing that I think a lot of people are aware of because we've done some films that people might know, but a lot of people probably haven't yeah. seen before. Unfortunately, I think yes. 400 Blows and Seven Samurais explores the horrors of humanity in certain ways. <laughs> okay, here it comes. Okay, well. Okay, Julia, what about you? First experience, how many times have you seen the film? And then how did you watch it this time around? Yeah, so I think my first time watching Alien, uh, I'm pretty sure I was still in high school. I think I was in the latter half of my high school uh, career. And then going off into uh, studying at university, I watched it a good couple of times talking about genre and uh kind of meshing of genres and dealing with hybrid genres in the film world and how Alien kind of fits into that. And then since then, I've watched it quite a number of times within the recent months, even. Um, I feel like it's kind of like one of those horror movies like Jaws, that it's just such a classic that it's easy to go back and return to. And I always feel like I find something that I really enjoy and just makes it makes the horror that much more heightened as I keep going back to it. Uh, so I think I've seen it close to between 10 and 15 times at this point. The oh last time that goodness. I watched it was a few months ago in April. I watched it um, because I was working on an article about Jones the Cat, which you can find <laughs> at School Rejects. I remember when we mentioned we were going to do this, you were all for coming on and talking aliens. So yeah, clearly a big fan. And it's funny you mentioned Jaws too, because this was pitched, I think when they gave the screenplay to Fox, I think they pitched it as Jaws in space. And you can definitely see a lot of similarities between those two movies, for sure. Uh, Even though it was just a a couple of years after Jaws had come out. But yeah, so for me, I was was probably the weird one. I watched this movie when I was nine. So, (laughs) So here's the deal. My brother had it when it came out on, I think... It, it was before the quadrilogy had come out on like the box set. He just had like the DVD of it and it was the theatrical cut. This was way before the director's cut came out. And thing about me, I've probably mentioned this a bunch of times. I would go down to my brother's room when I was a kid and I would just watch movies in there that I wasn't allowed to watch. And mm. I saw Alien the same year that I watched The Matrix and American Pie. I was nine years old. Huh. Very impressionable child. And I loved Alien. Freaked me out. I didn't have nightmares, but I definitely... I it, A lot of it went over my head, for sure. It wasn't a movie that I fell in love with immediately. I think it was like the third or fourth time I saw it that I really loved it. Like, I really thought, man, this is just... Because I, I liked Aliens more because it was more of the action-y movie. But every single time I rewatch Alien, and I, I've probably seen it... I don't really know how many times. Probably eight or nine times. Every time I see it, I get something else completely different out of it, because I, I think unlike some of the other Alien films, I mean, some of its themes are a bit denser, which we're going to talk about. And this time around, this is the first time I've rewatched Alien in a few years, so it's it's been a minute. And I was, I was stoked to watch it because I had never seen the director's cut before. So the director's oh. cut came out in 2003. Uh, yeah, I'd always seen the theatrical. And because I had watched the theatrical, I watched it on TV, and then... I forget how else I watched it. I watched it like, you know, on like laptops, right? Like, you know, I just renting it and things like that. But yeah, the director's cut came out in 2003 and it's actually like a minute shorter. And so Ridley Scott, he kind of, he's pretty well known for tinkering with his films and he cut out a few Mm. scenes and then he added in an extra scene, which we won't give away here because it kind of spoils certain things, but it's a very pivotal scene because it's something that 
kind of echoes in Aliens. So again, we'll talk about that later, but I'm curious. We, we, I don't think anybody really mentioned it, but has besides Will. Julia, have you seen both the director's cut and the theatrical? I think we'll end up finding out when we talk about the uh, pivotal scene that you're referring okay. to. <laughs> Perfect. Hmm. And then Sam. Yes, I've seen both versions multiple times. Okay, okay. So we have we between the four of us, we should have a pretty decent understanding of what's different. I, I think I'm pretty caught up, but because I watched the director's cut this time around, and I'm working off of memory from the theatrical. But okay, yeah, those are our first experiences. Let's get into the making of Alien, and please interrupt me if I miss anything. I'm going to try to give like a brief overview because. I watched two documentaries about the making of this film. I read a bunch of literature on it. It is a long and complicated story. So I'm not, I'm not trying to give it its due, but so this movie, it, first of all, Alien got a limited release in May 25th, 1979. So we are bending the rules a little bit because its wide release was June 22nd, 1979. It had a budget mm. of about $11 million, which was way more than they initially started with, but the, as the story goes, Fox kept putting money into this because they started to have more and more faith in it, especially because this movie probably wouldn't have happened. It almost certainly wouldn't have happened if Star Wars hadn't come out and been such a huge hit in 1977. But going mm. all the way back to the beginning, this was sort of the brainchild of Dan O'Bannon. Uh, he was a... He was he was a, a film school student. He made Dark Star with John Carpenter, which was like a student film that turned into kind of a professional film that got like a theatrical run. And <laughs> kind of, yeah. And I know Sam, you you're <laughs> the only one who's seen Dark Star, so I'll let you talk about that when you want to. But mm. so so Bannon makes that film, and then he partners with uh, Ronald Shusett. And they they both basically make a deal that they're going to collaborate with each other on this film, which at the time he was thinking he was going to call it Memory, and another film called they were going to do Total Recall. Uh, they decided hmm. to go with Memory first, later called it Star Beast. But kind of in between this time, Dan O'Bannon, again, <laughs> long story. I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible, but it's all very important. So Dan O'Bannon, he actually gets attached to, uh, I forget the filmmaker's name, but the one who was going to make Dune, not David Lynch, but the French filmmaker, uh, Alexander Zahovsky, something uh, like that. Jodorowsky? Jodorowsky, that's it. Thank he's, you. He's, he's Jodorowsky, Chilean. Jodorowsky, right? He's, he's Chilean, by the way. Yeah, he's Chilean. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So he, well, O'Bannon went to France, where they were making the film, and- the film was canceled, of course, but O'Bannon, that's where he met a lot of the artists and filmmakers who would help him realize the vision of what would eventually be Alien. Uh, famously, that's where he met uh, Mobius and H.R. Uh, Geiger, who are Giger. I think yeah. it's Giger. And that's uh, Giger. Yeah. Giger is, of course, the one who would go on to create the, the look of both the facehugger and the xenomorph. And right, a lot yeah. of these artists had a lot of different hands and like, the look and feel of the movie, of course, Ridley Scott would eventually be attached as director and he helped kind of realize the set and that what everything kind of looks like in that sense. Yeah. Wasn't Walter Hill pretty big part as a producer? I was going to get to him too. So, okay. So Bannon comes back from Dune. He writes the script uh, for Alien and he and Shusset decide to call it Alien actually because uh, they called it Star Beast which was Shusset's kind of idea, I think. And then O'Bannon, he noticed that Alien was showing up in the script a lot because that's what all the crew members were calling it. And so he was like, okay, we'll just call the movie Alien. It kind of works as a noun, but it also works as an adjective. And so they really liked that. They stuck with it and nobody ever questioned it. I mean, it was just that that's what it was for the entire production. Mm -hmm. 
So they wanted to get funding for this movie. And oh, and I forgot to mention that uh, Shusset is famous. Uh, he gets credit for because because most of the structure of the film is O'Bannon. But Shusset had the idea to have the a scene where I won't give it away. But it's like the famous scene that happens like halfway through this movie involving the facehugger, uh, the aftermath of the facehugger. And so that that is the reason like that scene is why Walter Hill and I forget the name of the other guys, something Jyler, David Jyler, Jyler. I forget how to pronounce his name, but those are the producers who they got the script, hated it, but they loved that scene. It's called the dinner scene. Mm. And they loved it so much that they decided they were going to try to basically salvage this script. So they went, they went in and it's a bit complicated. Like there are some weird underhanded things where they maybe try to like pass the screenplay off as their own and kind of remove Dan O'Bannon from like credit for the screenplay. But eventually they kind of worked it out, but Hill and uh, I keep wanting to say Jyler, but I, I don't know if it's Jyler or Geiler or something like that. But Jyler mm. and Hill, they were the ones who kind of came up with this idea of like, oh, it's truckers in space, like that sort of like I, that sort of world building and a, a bunch of other things. They, there's a revelation that happens in this film involving one of the characters that was their idea. So just keep that in mind that. A lot of people had their hands in this because the, the film looked very different before they finally got Ridley Scott to direct it. This was his second film after The Duelists in 1977, which is more of a period piece. And of course, we now know Ridley Scott is the guy who did Blade Runner after this, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, so many other films. Uh, I think we're, I think I was a fan of The Martian, his most recent sci fi sort of film. If you don't, oh, yeah. I, well, not counting mm-hmm. Alien Covenant, but. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing squirms, but okay. Yeah, um, it sort of flew off the rails a little bit. That's what I like about it. <laughs> but all right. So that said, uh, we eventually did get Alien, and the making of it is a fascinating story. I highly recommend you check out the documentaries on YouTube. Uh, one of them is called The Beast Within, and The Beast Within kind of takes you through a lot of this stuff, and I'm just sort of giving a quick overview of it. Yeah, this is the quick version of it, so right. there's a lot that went Right. It, and it's it's not a long movie. It's only 117 minutes long. It's just, just shy of two hours, which I love. I think the, the, the runtime of this is absolutely perfect. Like, I would not know. And it's funny because the, the first cut of this was over three hours. And they, yeah, and they were crazy. concerned, but, but Ridley Scott was just like, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll cut an hour. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and it turns out the things that they, they cut were just like superfluous scenes anyway. So, uh, Will Ashton, what, what's going on with this cast? Because I, I don't even know where to begin with it. Can, can you explain to us, uh, who's in this movie and why is it significant? Why is it significant? Because the cast or I mean, because there's a lot of reasons why it's significant in general. But uh, let me just make sure I understand the question here. I mean, it's all of the above. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, the cast. I mean, obviously, Sigourney Weaver is probably the biggest. Um, Tom Securit. Securit. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Scare. Uh, thank you. Harry Dean Stanton, of course, the late, great Harry Dean Stanton, uh, as well as the late, great John Hurt. We should mention with Sigourney Weaver, she was an unknown at this time. She had never been in a film before. Now we know her, of course, but yeah, she was uh, known for Broadway. Okay. How old is she in the movie, by the way? I was trying to figure that out because she seemed like pretty young, like pretty close. She's in her late 20s during filming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say she seemed like kind of close to our age. So anyway, yeah, uh, Victoria, or sorry, Veronica Cartwright. Um, um, oh, um, this one I'm unfortunately probably going to mispronounce. Uh, Bojaya Benjao? Um, hang on. Yep. The the gentleman yeah. who played the the alien himself. It's a oh, Nigerian yeah. actor 
Balassi Padejo, I believe. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't. He doesn't play the alien yeah, all the time. Yeah, this was his only his only credit. So yeah. Yeah, and then you. Sorry, you mentioned Yafit Koto. Yeah, it was the engineer um, Parker, and then mm-hmm. uh, of course Helen Horton is the voice of Mother. So pretty contained cast. I mean, obviously we're uh, focused entirely, almost, well, almost entirely in one location for the entirety of the film. So obviously it has like kind of like uh, self contained in space model that a lot of films after it would obviously be influenced by, including uh high life from earlier this year. Yeah. I mentioned alien in my review of high life. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a ton of films that have been influenced uh, by alien, including, including predator who obviously he would get to know in the film alien versus predator. And it's unfortunate sequel. Um, although they're both not that great films to begin with, but although, I mean, alien versus predator has moments uh, Alien vs. Predator Requiem is just garbage, in my opinion, at least. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could go all day, I guess, naming all the films that have been influenced by uh, Alien, but I don't know if I'd want to indulge in such. So I'll let you take the ball again, John. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy cast. I mean, Tom Skerritt, I think at the time, he was really only known for MASH. And he was, I think they were going to have Harrison Ford. They wanted Harrison Ford to be his character. And... I think they go back, like the rumor has it, like Ford was a little resistant at the time to be like in another space movie. I think he didn't want to get, start getting typecasted, but I think this movie was so successful. Yeah. This movie was so successful. He and Ridley Scott ended up collaborating with Blade Runner. So uh, just kind of, it kind of worked out for the best probably. Uh Mm. Did you know who almost played Ripley? Who was like the tied with Sigourney Weaver for number one choice? Meryl Streep. Yes. And do you know the reason why why she wasn't cast? Um, I know why they cast Sigourney Weaver. And then I, I remember reading yeah. about why Meryl didn't get cast, but I, I, it's, I'm losing it. Yeah. It wasn't Kramer versus Kramer, was it? Yeah, no, that, that was, they were sort of contemporary. But the reason that um, Meryl Streep ultimately passed on it, I believe, uh, was because of the tragic death of John Cazale, which happened just oh. that year. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah. So we were very close to having Meryl Streep and Harrison Ford in the <laughs> movie Alien. Can you imagine how differently all of history yeah. would have turned out? I mean, if you want to go down that road, if <laughs> you want not, to talk about I all do. the people that were almost cast in Star Wars. That's that's an extra milestone <laughs> for another day, for sure. Yeah, so Gertie Weaver, though, she she has a fantastic story to how she got this part, because she was late, because she went to the wrong hotel, and they were waiting for her, and they heard her, like, panicking, running down the hall, but then she stops at the doorway, and, like, they could tell that she was, like, trying to compose herself, and then she walked in, and according to Ridley Scott, that's when he knew she was it like she was going to be the one because he was like that's ripley that's exactly who ripley is she can like be that common collected person when she needs to be so really cool and i have to say bilbo baggins himself ian home um one of the first times i ever because i watched i watched fellowship of the ring and that was one of the first times i ever recognized an actor from another movie and like really made a conscious like observation of it because I was like, oh, it's Ash. <laughs> and he's Bilbo Baggins. That's fun. And then I remember getting in a little bit of trouble because uh, yeah. my uncle was like, how would you know that? <laughs> and I was like, oh, geez. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that said, um, very cool cast. And uh, I definitely will talk more about them as we go on. But Sam Noland, 
tell us tell us what is the legacy of alien mm. uh, did, did it did people like this movie you know, it's funny. Uh, it was actually the response was actually rather lukewarm upon its initial release. It was uh, it made a it made a whole lot of money. So uh, probably the reason that it uh, remained in the public eye even to this day. But yeah, there was a uh, a lot of mixed reaction to it. Uh, I know that I know. Um, I remember Ebert uh, when he first saw it was not particularly fond of it. Said that it was just sort of like just sort of thin and didn't have a whole lot to offer and which is so funny because would years later go back and call it literally one of the greatest movies of all time just declared it one of those it's on his greatest yeah it's on his greatest films list yeah the the exact opposite yeah go ahead no i was gonna say i mean one thing that's always great about roger is that he he always owns up when he's like wrong or he undersells a movie he's always like yeah i wasn't really 100 percent giving this movie its credit and so uh, that's always one thing i respect about roger or or if he oversells a movie the exact opposite thing happened with the graduate Uh, he loved it when it first came out in 1967 and then like 25 years later said oh my goodness i don't like this movie anymore which is very strange because that's one of the most acclaimed movies ever but that's for that's for another extra milestone i thought you don't like that movie sam I I personally am not rather I'm not I'm not particularly fond of it, but mm-hmm. we'll have to wait till at least 2022 to talk about that one. So let's hope okay. there's not a lot of competition. I I have it planned months in advance. Not I haven't decided. I just have all the options months in oh, advance. Geez. So you can count on me, audience and and uh, crew num- crew members. Um, oh, I was I was gonna mention though because so I watched. Because you're right that Ebert, and, and I put this down too, Ebert was like, he and Siskel were critical of the movie in their print reviews. But the funny thing is, in their video review, if you watch, and I did, I watched the sneak previews episode where they talk about Alien, and they both said you people should go watch it. And it, it, so it's it's kind of funny because they did that a, a while after they saw it, when it was like already out in theaters and cr- audiences were starting to really love the film. At that point, it was already becoming a hit. And they sort of, they were way more positive at that point. So it already started to happen. I think their initial, their initial take was like, yeah, it's scary. And the sets are really cool. But I mean, I don't know. It's, it's not Star Wars. It's not Close Encounters or 2001. And I did Ugh. find like one negative review. And I think I gave it to you, Sam. But yeah, I'll let you continue. Yeah, it's, I, I actually didn't get that. So that's, I'm, I'm curious. Was mm-hmm. it Pauline Kale by I chance? did look f- to see if I could find one, her review oh, of this man, film and that's... I didn't. But I did find Vincent Canby's review for the New York Times. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I have it right Ooh. here. Ooh. I'll read it very quickly. So he wrote this when the movie sure. came out. Uh, Aliens, set and special effects are well done, but these things no longer surprise or tantalize us as they once did. In a very short time, science fiction films have developed their own jargon that's now become a part of now become a part of the grammar of film. You know the sort of stuff I mean. The shots of blinking instrument panels, of wildly bleeping computers, have cryptic messages clattering in square typefaces across television screens. There's also the obligatory shot of that huge space vehicle early on in every film. It appears from over our right shoulder, passes over our head, (laughs) and then proceeds slowly and majestically toward the far distance at screen left. When I first saw it in 2001, it was awesome. Now it makes me feel like a turtle on a busy, though unnaturally quiet, highway. So he he has one of the few negative reviews huh. uh, still out there that you can you can check it out today. But yeah, it's fascinating to read this. Yeah. It's not like he's wrong per se. He's just <laughs> wrong about this film, <laughs> right? Yeah, the idea that a 1979 science it. fiction was played out is kind of a funny notion. But yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it seems kind of relevant now, but yeah, at the time, it's kind of absurd. 
Yeah, so it's uh, it, it definitely it does take its uh, a lot of inspirations. I think uh, I know a few of them are listed here. Uh, the thing from another uh, another world, which is the movie that John Carpenter would remake into the thing several years later, uh, was a big inspiration for that. Granted, yeah. that one took place in the Arctic, uh, and this is in space. Um, but also, a movie that did take place partly in space was Forbidden Planet, which is one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever. Um, it's it, that's sort of the idea of like, oh hey, look, we're receiving a strange transmission yeah. from <laughs> that planet over there. Let's go see. It was the 1950s. I forgot to add this too, but the Blob is another one that he was clearly inspired by like the idea of like the the one by one yeah yeah and it and it's not on record anywhere but i think uh, it's a it's a very fascinating parallel because um not to self-promote or anything but a long time ago i did an episode of uh my old podcast anyway that's all i got we talked about our favorite space movies um and i put alien right next to andre tarkovsky's solaris uh which is one of my favorite movies and re-watching this it's like sort of eerily similar. And I use that word choice very descriptively. They both have very similar senses of just sort of going around the ship and just seeing what's going on um, without really having anything having to happen. Long pans through hallways, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's Solaris is a lot more cerebral. Um, and I'd actually argue it's a little bit better, but uh, that is for another time. Regardless, Tegan? I was going to say, I was, um, now that I think about it, it was the thing, John Carpenter's the thing inspired by Alien? Well, I mean, it was probably inspired by the Howard Hawks version, too. Because, I mean, it, it's the same structure, right? Yeah. But I guess, I guess, I guess we were saying, though. No, but I mean, like, just like, there's like, no, but there's like very specific things in um, the thing that are reminiscent of Alien, including like the blowtorch and like. You could compare the, yeah. like Kurt Russell mm-hmm. to Tom Skerritt a little bit, uh, you know, like the kind of like passive bravado. Yeah, they even yeah. look the similar. That's a good point. Yeah, Tom Skerritt, by the way, one of my favorite beards of all time. I'm envious of that. Um, but regardless, uh, so Alien came out, it was, and you know, all that was uh, happening across the year. And then by the end of the year, it managed to win the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, which, mm-hmm. thank goodness, it did, and not some other movie that we've never heard of before, like what happened with Seven Samurai. It was also nominated for Best Art Direction, uh, which it did not win. I actually, I don't know off the top of my head what, yeah, what it yeah. lost to. Um, yeah, so it also won the Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film, as well as Best Director for Ridley Scott, and Best Supporting Actress for Veronica Cartwright, which I love, by the way, because I don't think I think she's one of the tr- the true uh, uh, defining things about this movie. But we can get to that later. She's she's, she's the audience surrogate, like she's the person telling you, you it's okay to be scared about like what's yeah. going on. Doesn't matter how red and puffy your eyes get. Uh, and then it was also nominated for Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver. I imagine uh, lost to someone very dignified, but we move on anyways. Uh, <laughs> and the, it has a one, one of the higher uh, Rotten Tomatoes percentages we've had, 97, although they've all been high because of their classics. Um, and then the AFI in 2008 ranked it the seventh best movie in the science fiction genre, which I would say is about right. Uh, just above Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which is correct, and below Blade Runner, which is also correct. So good on you, AFI. <laughs> I think I would have a harder time putting it above or putting it below Blade Runner, but uh, I have to oh, think about well, that. We think differently once again. Uh, maybe, 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 maybe. Yes, yes. Uh, you, you, you've seen, you've seen how tall I am, John, in person. So. <laughs> That's true. 
I got my head in the clouds. Uh, and then in 2008, I referenced this list all the time. Uh, it's Empire's top 500 movies of all time, made number 33. And I knew that off the top of my head, by the way. So I don't need your your Always notes. Always finding a way to put yeah. that in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know right. you have a great memory. That's right. Thank you, thank you for that. For the, for the, literally that one list, like that's what I've de- I've dedicated at least a quarter of my of my brain power to memorizing all 500 of those movies but god damn it i can name anything on the list so uh i suppose it all works out and overall it's seen as just one of the most influential and iconic science uh science fiction movies of all time you see it referenced all the time you didn't mention yeah. space balls the great gag at the end which i love <laughs> uh, it's hard to watch this movie after seeing space balls without just thinking of what happened to space balls it's yeah so yeah we won't give it away for sure but yeah of course yeah and of course it's good it's gone on to uh, influence so many others. Had a variety of sequels. Had three direct sequels, uh, which sort of I prefer Aliens a little bit. But after that, it it's a dramatic step down in quality. Which is weird because f- first film directed by David Fincher is the third Aliens. Yeah, it gotta make gotta pay the bills somehow, right? Um, and I think Joss Whedon wrote Alien Resurrection. Man, did. 90s were a crazy time. Yeah. Directed by Jean-Pierre Junet, director of Amelie. So you think about that, audience. Um, And yeah, and then crossed over with The Predator, as Will mentioned, twice to very little avail. Uh, That franchise died immediately, and it's a good thing it did. And they've been flailing to try to do this prequel series uh, over the past like decade or so. Uh, who yeah. knows what's going on with that one, but we're not here to talk about that. For sure. For sure. Yes. We did. We did talk about Alien Covenant on Cinemaholics a couple of years ago. Uh, that, but don't don't Will, listen to that Will wasn't on. Don't do it. Will's not on that episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't get to talk about Alien Covenant or because we, we also talked about Prometheus and we tried to figure out is it, if it was good or not. But that's a whole other thing. Uh, Sam, yeah. how did how did Alien do at the box office? You know, John. I I'm very happy to to stall for a couple seconds. There it is. So John uh, <laughs> Alien at the box office um, was a commercial hit, as I mentioned, made between uh, 100 and 200 million worldwide, which adjusted for inflation is over 700 million. So nowadays that would be considered like a massive hit as uh, and as it was at the time. Yeah, that's like a little more than I think Aladdin made this summer. Yeah. So, yeah. so think about that audience. That's going to be my catchphrase for this episode. Right. Well, just like an R-rated sci-fi horror film made just yeah. a little bit less than like a Disney musical. Like that's kind of crazy to me to think about, you know, like yeah. John Wick 3 made, you know, about 250, 280,000, <laughs> you know, not adjusted. You know, That's adjusted, obviously, for inflation. And then this yeah. movie was like such a big hit. And I, I, I can see why. So, yeah. Yeah. It's an R-rated, uh, slow thoughtful, patient sci-fi horror movie. Uh, and it all worked out. So there is still hope. Everyone believe there is still hope. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Julia Tady, it's time to talk about this film. We've, we've gotten all of the, the, the little, little details out of the way. So tell us what is the plot synopsis for alien? And uh, let's, let's start talking about this movie in more detail. Sure. So the official, if rightly vague plot synopsis, plot synopsis that's provided by imdb internet movie database states after a space merchant vessel the nostromo perceives an unknown transmission as as a distress call it lands on the source moon finds and finds one of its crew kane played by the late john hurt 
attacked by a mysterious life form, and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. Mm-hmm. Alien seamlessly combines horror and science fiction to act as a hybrid for genre of sorts, with each member of the crew being pecked off one by one. It's survivalist horror to the nth degree, meshing notions of morality and leadership along with what dangers we would risk putting others in for the sake of newfound knowledge. Oh, I love that last sentence, and we'll definitely have to to address that momentarily. But okay, let's let's talk about this film, uh, kind of generally speaking. Julia, I get the sense that you like it because you've seen it so many times. So I'll, <laughs> I'll ask this: what What is it about Alien that kind of resonates with you? Like, why has it had such an effect on you and made you a fan? Right. So I think one of the best things about the original Alien is, and I think that Sam might have mentioned this, is its simplicity and the fact that one of the best aspects of the film is its pacing and its buildup and its suspense. And I know that earlier on, we were talking about kind of the likeness between Ridley Scott's Alien and Steven Spielberg's Jaws. And one of the things that I find really riveting, and especially upon first watches that I found very riveting about Alien, was the fact that we don't really see the xenomorph as much as either we want to, we don't really know what is hunting these crew members, what's killing them, how they're killing them, especially. I think one of my absolutely favorite sequences in the film is when, oh gosh, who is it? Brett goes to look for Jones and Mm -hmm. he walks into this room full of just chains that are dripping. He takes off his hat to feel the water or the liquid across his face unbeknownst to him he's being stalked by this xenomorph and then just taken up into the chains and we don't even see what happens to him which i think is the most terrifying aspect we just have this close-up of jones unemotional cat face and i think it's just one of the (laughs) best oh it's just so good every time it's one of the quintessential I think sequences of Ridley Scott's Alien. It's why it's ma- it's been such a huge influence. I think in horror and science fiction, and in the horror uh, science fiction hybrid genre, it's that fear of not only not being able to see what it is that we're afraid of, but just being terrified of this specter, this formless thing that's shape shifting at all times. It's great. Is that the best acting of a cat in a film ever? I was going to ask that. <laughs> I personally, I would definitely rank it in my top five, you know? Wow. Mm. So I'm glad you referenced that scene with Brett. Cause when I was rewatching it, I, I never really got this before, but that's so Hitchcock that entire scene. And like, you get this right. sense. Cause I love how it parallels the themes of like, now men get to be scared because it's like right out of psycho. Cause he even like stops to sort of like take like a little shower and I was just waiting for like the silhouette of the alien to have a knife and just start like stabbing him. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. Uh, okay. Well, Ashton, uh, let's, let's get, I know we were, you wanted to go after Sam, but I'm just going to jump to you. So we haven't heard you in a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John, I want to assert that power. <laughs> But yeah, Will, you know, we missed an opportunity to kind of talk about the Alien movies back in 2017 because you weren't on that episode. So I don't really know that much about where you're at with this entire series. So, but specifically with Alien, what, what do you think of this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always had an affinity for the Alien films. I've enjoyed all of them, though, except for uh, Alien, the last Alien vs. Predator. 
because I thought that was just an awful movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, even the kind of lesser or the quote unquote lesser uh, Alien sequels like Alien 3 and Alien Requiem, while certainly flawed in both respects, I I tend to enjoy both those films. And I mean, Prometheus is fine. There's certainly stuff in it I like, and there's also stuff in it that frustrates me a good deal. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I do think I think overall like Alien Covenant just because of how weird and risky it is as far as just some of the audacious choices it makes particularly relating to um, michael fassbender's character or characters also the song choice of take me home country roads was a huge risk right so there you go yeah yeah i mean there are so many movies then it's like should we be the yet another uh film that has this song in 2017 it's like we're coming out first it doesn't matter it's like oh yeah yeah yeah, that's right (laughs) also did you mean to say alien resurrection before because i think you said alien requiem sorry my bad uh, Alien Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, exactly. Well, that what a movie that would be. Um, <laughs> but, Slightly different. Uh, yeah, actually, one thing I was going to mention earlier, but my mic I was actually accidentally put on mute, was that I feel like the like um, iconography of Alien was like, I was very aware of that before I actually saw the film. Um, because I know, particularly relating to the scene Spaceballs you're talking about, that's a film I watched several times oh, in my no. like preteen yeah. years. Uh, and that scene was like very much driven into my brain. It wasn't really until um, later in life when I watched Alien that I really appreciated what that scene was doing. Well, I certainly liked at the time. I, I definitely like I didn't realize like, oh, that's also John Hurt in the movie <laughs> yeah. uh, Alien. Like they actually got the actor back and then like the significance of him saying like, oh, not again for that line and all that stuff. <laughs> I um, forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I was actually I, as awesome. soon as that scene happened when I was rewatching Alien, I went straight to YouTube to watch the scene in Spaceballs because like <laughs> I have to I have to revisit the scene because it's so good. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, I mean, it's always had like, I think it's such a part of film culture at this point that like, everyone knows like the face huggers, everyone knows, uh, Ripley, everyone knows. I mean, like, I guess some of the stuff I was going to mention was part of the, uh, sequels, but there's just so much about this film that, uh, is present or present to, uh, how we know sci-fi today. And it definitely makes sense that this film, uh, along with 2001 and Star Wars would basically shape the genre for years and decades to come. Yeah. All right. I, I, that's an interesting look at it. Yeah. Cause I, and I do want to talk to you about this eventually, but we should talk about really whether or not this film is a classic. So we'll get to that in a second, but Sam, I want to hear from you. What, yes. what, do you. what do you think of the first alien? I, I don't know. I don't know what to expect here. I don't know where, where you're at. I'm, I'm strongly considering doing the same joke we do with every freaking episode of Extra Milestone where I'm like, eh, it's okay, but then I really say it's great. Uh, I'm just going to skip that because I'm going to say it's great. Of course it's great. It's alien. What do you expect? It's, it's something I love about 70s sci-fi is just how, uh, how immersive it is and how thoughtful it is, almost without fail. I think it's uh, the greatest decade for science fiction. Um, second only to maybe the fifties, but everything in it is just is thoughtful or weird or uh, revolutionary or remarkable in some way. And and this is certainly, I would say, the third best sci-fi movie of the seventies. Um, and I think it's it's uh, almost everything about it works. And I I also get something different out of it every single time um you know what even even if it's just a little you know a little detail and reading up on it um i sort of came to an understanding that i've never realized before why it's so rewatchable is because of how weirdly um this might be a strange word to describe in you know alien slasher movie but how classy it is 
when you read like all the weird ideas that they almost put in the movie but decided not to at the last minute it's like oh wow this could have been really sleazy and off-putting but it was actually uh it's actually rather sophisticated in every just just everything about it the way the sequences play out um you know obviously all the technical aspects the sets the lights all that kind of stuff. And also just this weird, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, this weird sexual undercurrent throughout the whole movie uh, is <laughs> one of my favorite things. <laughs> is it really an undercurrent? It's a, it's it's like, a, it's a wave. <laughs> it's a tsunami of visual and and verbal innuendo that is... that is. I don't even know if it's innuendo. I mean, it's like, you it's so I, literal. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Where's it on its sleeve? It does. The, the scene where Ash goes nuts, especially, that's the that's the one scene. Every time I watch it, I'm like, what is this freaking movie? <laughs> but it's great. Yeah. yeah. I'm, do you guys know what the alternate ending or what the ending was going to be at one point? Since you mentioned, Sam, like there was some silly stuff they had. So, so the way the movie was supposed to end was Ripley was going to die. It was a very dark ending. And the alien was going to rip her head off and then, like, I think attach itself to her body and then message Earth and be like, and start using her voice. <laughs> a, a droid did the same thing with a clone trooper in the Star Wars animated Clone Wars series. That's the kind of ending we're talking about. <laughs> right, right. And Ridley Scott, obviously, was like, nah, we're not doing that. But um, yeah. yeah, this movie almost got insanely bonkers. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't even know where to begin with this movie. It. I, I definitely sympathize, Will, with your whole thing about it, it's it's interesting, not in a bad way necessarily, but to watch this movie knowing everything about it. it and I was concerned about that going into this because I was like, that's why I wanted to watch the the director's cut because like, oh, maybe this will at least be something kind of new and something kind of unexpected. You really only get like one extra scene and it's just like a, just a bit of a tighter movie. And the extra scene, I don't think is all that important necessarily because it's something that happens. The reason they cut it out, it was fortuitous because otherwise it would have spoiled something cool that happens in aliens. And so watching this movie, I was like rewatching it. I was really paying attention, not to the familiar stuff, but really paying attention to like what this film's themes were. Because you mentioned Sam, like the 1950s were like such a incredibly important time for science fiction. So I kind of had that hat on while I was watching this. Cause I was trying to be like, where does this movie really fit? Because I was thinking a lot about like the politics of these movies and how you have like two different types of sci-fi movies from the fifties and sixties and seventies, mainly the fifties. And you have like the one type of sci-fi movie where like, it's a little bit more conservative in the sense where like the scientist is kind of like what Ash is in this movie where like, don't trust the scientists because they're, 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 they're so obsessed with like adoring, you know, the bad thing, like in, in the thing from another planet, like that scientist is a good example where he's like, Hey, you know, like I, I want this, we can, we can reason with it or I need to preserve it. Don't kill it. Like that kind of attitude. And yeah. then the sort of like feeling of like the government uh, is, is terrible, terrible at what it's supposed to do. And then you have the other types of sci-fi films that are a little bit more like idealist, right? Like uh, I think a good example, probably the day the earth stood still where yeah, it's a little bit sure. more of like, no, we should, you know, scientists, they, they, they get a bad hand, bad hand. They don't get listened to. 
But what I like about Alien is that it kind of merges both types of movies a bit. Because instead of the government... Yeah, because, like, you have, like, the sort of, like evil scientists but you also have like this this kind of negative anti-capitalism thing going on where like the Mm -hmm. company like makes them expendable and so on so i thought that was really cool and i I, that was something that i was able to catch in this one but even during the kind of the introduction or the uh first act of the film you have brett and uh uh, Parker talking about how much they're going to be compensated for their role yeah. in the Nostromo's original uh, journey. Uh, so, yeah, I think that these politics of uh, that you were uh, discussing or, or commentating on, uh, they they're right there at the at the forefront before we even get into the horror of everything else. We get mm. this like interesting commentary of uh, uh, people working for the government, people on these uh, type of types of expendable missions going out and seeking knowledge Mm -hmm. and even prior to that just kind of worrying about their own compensation rate and how they themselves become like commodified oh yeah that's exactly right because it's it's even scarier because these are people like that could be us you know like they have just like regular jobs that just happen to be in space (laughs) so like they're a bunch of working schlubs right yeah um yeah that was was one thing i was kind of alluding to when i uh, mentioned that the film had such a like kind of resonance throughout uh, film history is that like with this and Star Wars like there was definitely that sense that like I guess before it like was 2001 stuff there was like kind of like a sophistication like uh, like like scientists were like you know kind of like astute high-minded people and this like they're just kind of like regular people who are like drink beer and like kind of like yeah you know shoot the stuff and just like it was a very kind of grounded uh, ironically uh, sort of approach for this film and I think that like those first 30 minutes in that regard when I say it's kind of mundane like that's what I mean like it, it has like this weirdly kind of like casual vibe even though like they are you know millions upon billions light years in space that I think that's really impacted how uh, sci-fi films could be perceived in the future yeah and that's fully realized too by the set design right because they clearly took a note from star wars and this idea that like because you mentioned 2001 that was more yeah it was like pristine it was like very sterile and everything like the ships were very perfect and white and clean but in like in this movie like in star wars it's like there's exposed wiring and everything's like a little bit used and lived in and that was still pretty new at the time and it, it really works because and first we didn't mention this but they actually created like a set where like these were real rooms and like so th- like the actors were inside and kind of cramped and claustrophobic in in these corridors and like it was so much easier for them to act because they felt like they were being chased mm-hmm. by something and oh, i think yeah. that really had a great effect and you just don't get that in movies these days right where it's like so elaborate in the production design mm-hmm. even the visual design of the film is kind of like, kind of grimy and dirty in that regard like it's not like a clean kind of pristine film in that way like everything about it, like even the visual style kind of feels like you're kind of in close quarters with these guys and you're, you've yeah. kind of lived there for a little bit and stuff. And that that's pretty fascinating as well. There's tetanus in every look in every part of the ship. And it's that's what tetanus I love. Tetanus or it. texture? Tetanus. Tetanus. Okay. The disease. Like yeah. you need yeah. to oh, for it. Oh. Yeah. 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 It's it's a that bunch Jones of Jones is probably spreading. That Jones the it's Jones a feline TV. disease. Yeah. It's it's a whole bunch of like space truckers, basically. That was sort of the pitch or the, the basic idea behind it. A bunch of space truckers in like the least aerodynamic ship ever floating through space. And that and that just so happen they happen to find uh, this this thing 
that could like single-handedly eliminate humanity and it almost does like imagine what because we're reminder we're deep in spoiler territory that's the one thing i love about this movie is that it's not really optimistic or pessimistic about anything in its conclusion yeah because the eggs are still out there too oh yeah the eggs are still out there we, we don't know how they got there and i hope we never do ridley um but it's <laughs> it's uh because the eggs are still out there the alien for all we know is still alive for all we know the bastard can survive in space that's the thing that that always fascinates me is what happened to that xenomorph that flew off into the into space did it just like land on a planet or something same thing with kane's corpse that must have floated and hit an alien planet eventually and they built a religion around it but uh, getting off on a tangent here. Yeah, it's 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 a movie about how like the the uh, unforgiving pursuit of like, oh, what's out there will get us all killed and that maybe our place is still on Earth. It's very Tarkovsky and in that way, I think Solaris is about a similar thing I bring up for for that reason. It's kind of depressing when you put it that way, but okay. <laughs> it is, and that's what I love about it. It's a depressing movie, yeah. It's not a feel-good. The whole movie is depressing as hell. It does end, though, on a really cool note where Ripley gets to be this really awesome character, and I'm so jealous of the people who got to watch this movie before Sigourney Weaver was a thing. Like, I can't even imagine being able to, like, not know what Alien was about, who was in it, or anything like that, and seeing it blind, right when like pop culture just did not exist for this and like you go in and you see that for the first time i mean and even even just the idea that like for people they probably didn't even realize like ripley was going to be the main character like that's just a Mm. given now and that must have been such an awesome like turnaround right because like i was mentioning this before it's like some of the political undertones of this thing but then also it has some interesting things to say about like late feminism in the seventies, not all of it is very clear cut. Like you could really do a dissertation on this movie and which is, which was written, shot, directed all by like straight men. But Mm. there's so many things going on here that have to do with like, you know, kind of showing like the reversal of gender roles. The fact that the characters themselves were written as gender neutral, like Ripley wasn't written to be a woman or not necessarily a man, but then then Ridley Scott actually, kind of made that character come to life. And and of course, Sigourney Weaver did through her performance. But there's just so much going on here that I can't always wrap my head around it. So does anybody have anything substantial to say about, like, uh, how about you, Julia? What what did you think of the gender roles in this movie? Did you you think it had anything to say about feminism? Oh, gosh, really loading it up there. Um, (laughs) Well, I think the first thing that really just struck me uh, from the beginning is remembering that Ripley, whenever uh, Dallas is not on the ship, I believe that it's her that's whenever Dallas and Kane are not on the ship, she is the one that's in command. And while she is in command, Ash disobeys her orders. So right off the bat, know that exact same feeling. I think uh, it (laughs) resonates definitely with, um, a lot of women in that position. And just from that point on, a lot of her decisions that she brings up to the crew are not taken seriously until they're at the penultimate moment where there are only a few of them left and they're scrambling to try and figure out how to survive. Um, yeah. By that point, it's kind of goes into flight or fight mode. And I think that if there's one thing that, like you were talking about, John, with uh, Sigourney Reaver, 
Sigourney Weaver's whole story about how she earned the part of Ripley of having that kind of freak out moment out in the hallway and then being able to compose herself, go in and get the work done and impress Ridley Scott enough to be cast in the role. I think that she shows that 10 times over, hundreds of times over, even as Ripley of being in this life or death situation, more so death situation, (laughs) and just being able to destroy the ship, get the xenomorph as far away from her as she possibly can, and save the cat at the same time. Save the cat! (laughs) Which I still contend, like, I get the metaphor, because, so I, I understand this is a movie where it's like, it's trying, it's trying to do this whole thing of like, the rape stuff, right? Where, I mean, it's a literal penis monster. The face hugger is like a hermaphroditic sort of creature. So you can read that into it as well. And I like that in the sense that that it's a movie that's designed to scare men in a way that they're not used to being scared because it's always women who like in all manners are like the ones who like, movies are always showing them to be the ones like the rape is, is a horror for you or like the vessels of torture and pain. Yeah. Right. You know, the pains of childbirth and all of those things. And then this movie was just like, Hey men, like you should feel very, you know, lucky about your biology that you don't have to go through the same sort of thing or the same sort of fear necessarily. But at the same time, like rape towards men is a thing that happens. So it does sort of tap into something that a lot of people like men watching this movie probably hadn't really considered before. Maybe they hadn't really considered it in this visceral an act. Right. So, so there's that going on with it, but then also just, I, th- this movie kind of confuses me too, because then Ripley is, she, she's willing to like obey the quarantine. Right. It's like, no, let's not have anybody come in here. And I think in, in the film sort of way of being like maternity can be a good thing too, because she, you know, takes care of the cat. And I think that's what they're going for. But I still think the idea of her going back for the cat makes no sense for her character. Does anybody agree or disagree with that? Well, I think that she just has insurmountable amounts of empathy. It's why she's trying to be ethical about the situation and not put her fellow crew members in danger, thus trying to obey the quarantine perspective. And then if you have the ability to save another living figure on the Nostromo, why wouldn't you put yourself down in order to do that? I don't think it comes down to uh, her intrinsic character buildup, but more so in that moment, you make illogical errors or perceptively illogical errors, but you do them wholeheartedly knowing that you could get out of this alive. And if you do, you bring someone with you or you could both go down trying. Yes. I guess I read it though, is that like she's putting Lambert and Parker in danger because she's wasting time like looking for a cat when they're dealing with this crisis. I guess, I guess that's what rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, why is she putting the cat, like the interest of the cat before them? Doesn't she go, she hears the cat while she's listening to audio of them being hunted down though by the xenomorph after they had all decided that they were going to go and start to grab as much equipment as possible. Yeah, they need the coolant because they have to go into hypersleep, and without that, yeah, they'll they'll die because they don't have enough food. Right. And um, don't forget, also Harry Dean Stanton also goes for the cat as well. So I think it's just like right. they kind of treat him as like the cat is like a member of the crew. In other words, I'm not a cat person. I'm a, I'm allergic. I'm sorry. Oh, I guess I just gosh. don't get it. I knew that there was oh, something oh, deep here. Oh, I'm allergic too. And I am a cat person, so take that for what it's worth. There we go. Well, look, I grew up with a cat. 
and I had to say goodbye to the cap because my allergies got really bad. So I just, I have a, there's a little bit of history there. I haven't fully re- reckoned with it. I also think speaking of, uh, just, uh, Ripley's relationship with Jones though, not to like go off on this whole tangent, but I think if you watch the film over, she's the one that's the most kind of attached to that animal or to that other living being on the ship. The cats are only friends. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of like that physical interaction that being able to hold something or someone, another living soul, when you're a part of just like a lot of coworkers, I think that it goes into a whole lot of, um, we could go into like layers of the whole idea of workplaces being able to have like therapy animals and stuff like that, which is just a completely other realm, uh, spatial plane to go into. But I think that, yeah, it just always made sense to me that Ripley would go for the cat, especially too. There's like a really quick moment where the xenomorph looks at Jones in his little case and does absolutely nothing. So I'm a little bit, I'm not superstitious right. of Jones. I am a little stitious, but she <laughs> saves him nonetheless. It's a, it's a flurkin, right? <laughs> right. Oh, right. Oh, that's right. a good reference. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was thinking though, because my, my, my reading of the alien not caring about the cat was because the cat wouldn't have been able to like help it reproduce because I don't think it would have been able to cocoon the cat. And then I also don't think it perceived it as a danger. So it just didn't oh. care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a movie that would be if the <laughs> alien could cocoon with the cat. Well, we know it can do it with dogs. We've seen that happen in, uh, in one of the alien V predator movies. So granted that came out. Many- I don't count those. Those, those are completely those off canon. They exist. they exist, but they, they, they're completely no. So, yeah, I mean that the, the, the nineteen seventy seven Spider Man movie counts. That's a thing. No, writers but, who are ranking every Spider Man movie. Sam, like if you actually take the timeline from Alien vs Predator into account, like it literally does not make any sense. Like it, it does not yeah. like the information provided in Alien vs Predator. Like if you apply it to the Alien movies, it it doesn't check out. So I didn't you kind of think it. I didn't say it made sense. Can I pose a question? Actually. <laughs> Since we're kind of like quasi on this subject, a little bit more teetering on it, sure. teetering on it, what do you guys think actually happens to the bodies of the crew members? Because we never fully see everything that happens to them. Do you think that they are impregnated oh. by well, more, or do you? I mean, don't we? Sh- we see the one. We see um, what's his name, uh, Mash dude, uh, the guy Tom who's like, yeah. There we go. So yeah. you did see you did see the director's cut because that is the deleted scene. Okay. So the deleted scene is so after Ripley or no, while Ripley is like looking for the cat, I think it was before or after Sam. It, it's after. Okay. It's like when the ship is about to dis- yeah the ship is about to uh, self destruct. She finds the cocoons that have Dallas oh, and is. Brett. And Brett's farther along. Yeah. So I think the implication is that they're turning into eggs. Right. And so like, this is how they reproduce. So, and they cut it from the film. And I, that's why I said earlier, it's to the film's credit because in aliens, they sort of bring that whole thing back, but it's treated (laughs) as a revelation. So if they had shown this in theaters, people would have already known this was coming or like, this is the sort of thing that it's doing. And Mm -hmm. so I, I, I think it worked out. I like that it's in the director's cut, but it's still, it's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of surprising for me because, like, when he's doing the whole, like, kill me, kill me thing, like, I thought, like, that's, like, a line that's been, like, very much parodied throughout, mm-hmm. like, pop culture. <laughs> like, when I hear that line, I usually think of, like, it being used in comedic purposes. 
So it's kind of taking it back this time, it being used in a sincere way. So um, I don't know, maybe it just might like the dark, dark memes that I see on the internet. But um, yeah, I was kind of, I was taking it back. That, that was actually not part of the theatrical cut. And she does it. She sets them on fire, both of them. Right. On fire. And, and kill, Bercy kills them. <laughs> It's it's so dramatic, and I'm glad they cut it from the movie because there's that empathy again. Right? Yeah, because even though in her self interest is just to get out of there, but instead she, yeah, she even though she won't let them suffer for even a minute, but at the same time, it's like, girl, get out! Like it's just just get out of there, just just leave. Um, okay, so we, we've tackled a lot of things here. Uh, I'm curious. I, I want to know, Sam. Mm. Two words here. That okay. people throw around. And I don't sure. always agree when people call things classics. I don't always uh, agree when they okay. call them masterpieces. I feel pretty comfortable calling this both a classic and a mm. masterpiece. But what, what would what would you say? Do you, do you have an opinion? Uh, well, it's I, I was not anticipating this question. But uh, I think classic, yes, it's a classic, of course. It, I think a classic isn't necessarily a qualitative term. It's more of a quantitative one. If a movie is a certain number of years old and has had a certain level of impact on the art form or on pop, uh, pop culture as a whole, I think it should be considered a classic. Uh, I.e. Terminator 2 is a classic, as is The Lion King, uh, as is even something like Ghostbusters. Um, so yes, of course, this is, is still talked about to this day. Um when it comes to it being a masterpiece, if you want to use the like the dictionary definition, which is, I believe, let me look it up here. I want to get this. I want to get this exact exactly right. Uh, let's see. Let's and while see. you look that up, I'll say I, I don't necessarily agree that classic can't be qualitative necessarily because I think it's a mix of a bunch of things. I think I think it's like a mix of quality, and then I think it's a mix of also like you were saying how long it's been out. And mm-hmm. the cultural impact it has. I think it's like three, it's like the X factor, the quality and the time. And that's why like you could have a film, okay, it came out in the eighties or the, let's say the fifties and nobody really knows the film exists. You know, it's just, it's just kind of out there. I wouldn't call that necessarily a classic unless it was like amazing and just people just didn't know about it. Well, by that logic, like people don't really know the thing from another planet, but that has had influence on many films, including this one. Right. So does that make it a classic? I would call that a classic. Okay. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Maybe you guys, I, I don't know if there's like a specific definition, so we can we could go all day about that. Of course, of course. Okay, so the definition of masterpiece, which I was which I was not expecting. I was expecting something different. A work of outstanding artistry, skill, or workmanship. Uh, of which it is all three, I believe. So yeah, um, I think so. I think the the way I think when you first said the word, though, the definition that came into my head was uh, either the work of a master or somebody's like greatest achievement. Um, mm. I wouldn't consider Ridley Scott like one of my favorite directors of all time. Um, I think there are three of his movies that I love, and the rest I've seen I'm I'm either kind of lukewarm on or don't like. Um, I do think Blade Runner is the better movie than Alien, uh, just by just by a little bit. So if I'm going by that definition, that it's the best they've ever done, then technically no, but that should take nothing away from it because uh, obviously Alien is is a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just I think Ripley is a better character than Deckard, but maybe so. That doesn't mean the movie's better. Blade Runner has a better ending, in my opinion. I I think the Tears and Rain speech is just just 
absolutely beautiful. And I think the the ending of Alien is a little, it's like a little hackneyed. It's kind of fun. It's a little kick-ass, but it's not, I don't know. You're, you're just waiting for it to happen. This is what I love about the ending, though, is that the move, like, okay, so Ripley gets in the ship, flies away, the countdown's going, the ship explodes, and then she goes, I got you, you son of a bitch. And then it's like, great, movie's over, right? Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of keeps Not really, going. because she called Kane a bitch in that moment, and... I don't appreciate that. Kane was, I guess, not her friend, but that was John wasn't Hurt. So. Kane, but okay, that was the, something that was well. It was the son Kane. of okay. Yes. So, Julia, would you consider this a classic masterpiece, both or neither? Yeah, I mean, I feel like sometimes, uh, kind of parsing off those kind of terms can come across as like potentially hyperbolic, but it's an incredibly well-made film. We can't discount how much it's been such an influence on science fiction films, horror films to come. I mean, we just look at films and series that are coming out within the next month or two. In July, we'll get the third season of Stranger Things. And who's to say if we didn't have a xenomorph, would we have a Demogorgon? You know? That's true. So I definitely think that simply based on its influence, as well as um, 40 years later, just being a film that we can all kind of agree upon that decades later we can still sit down enjoy it find other things that we really like about it then i would definitely say that it's a classic in terms of masterpiece sometimes i feel like you know like i said that can become like a little hyperbolic um but it's an incredibly crafted film uh has a lot of detail very interesting character development but i'm not sure if i would call it a masterpiece Okay, okay. So, a little tougher to crack that one. Um, but what what about you, Will? Where where do you stand on that one? Uh, for the same reasons that Julia and Sam mentioned, I think the movie is undeniably a classic. Uh, I mean, the way that it has resonated throughout cinema and pop culture has proven that the film's legacy is long-lasting, and that's not even taking into account its own franchise, which may or may not still be going on. I believe, uh, yeah, Ridley Scott... Um, announced semi-recently that there's a third alien prequel movie in the works uh, or that he shut is. up shut up i don't care nobody cares well, well i mean <laughs> I, i'm sure people care uh i they mean must. you may not you, you might want to uh, pretend it doesn't exist but i'm sure people care about this matter i mean yeah but in any case um yeah no it, it's definitely yeah un- undeniably classic um masterpiece yeah i mean that's a word i i don't know i Tend not, I try not to use it too much because I like to reserve it for certain things. And I even sometimes I have used it in the past, including on this show. I tend to kind of like, eh, you know, it was a little premature to use that. Uh, with this movie, I mean, I think the case can certainly be made. I don't know if I would say that. I mean, it just I don't know. I, I, I want to see it a couple more times later in life before I really stick my foot down on that definition. But I know there's certainly been cases made for it. I was literally listening to a podcast this past weekend where the one co-host called this the perfect movie. And I mean, I know that's not an uncommon opinion. There are many people who, uh, especially in the film Twitter world, who will say that this is basically as good as movies get. Uh, I don't know if I'm quite there. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, know if, <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite there. Um, I'm sure you know, John, that many people on Twitter use that uh, poster as like their avatar and stuff. So it just seems like one of those films that uh, no matter what, will always have a special place in people's hearts for certainly understandable reasons. And I mean, it's not really I can point out that many flaws with the film. 
truth be told like the only things the only things that really don't quite work for me and like these are like more kind of like nitpicks and anything like i i agree with you sam that like i think the ending may have been better if it just cut off with the ship blowing up i've always felt oh, kind of no. weird that's not what i was saying at all oh sorry sorry i didn't mean i was cut uh, the hell off sorry i didn't mean to uh put words in your mouth there sam okay um okay actually i wouldn't say that either i think you need okay. that ending where she defeats him because otherwise if it had ended just there it would have been so anticlimactic Okay, yeah. No, I get that. No, that's fair. I was going to say, my my only real gripe is that I just always found it weird that, like, she's like, I just defeated this thing. Well, time to take my clothes off. And it's just always, like, kind of rubbed Wouldn't me the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, now you can point that out, Sam. <laughs> yes. I'm telling you, that's why the seed is great. No, that's this is what I love about the ending is that it, it ends, the ship explodes, and then it goes on for, like, two solid minutes where nothing's really happening. And we're like... What's going on? And I've literally heard stories. And in fact, former Anyway, That's All I Got co-host Anthony Battaglia tells a great story about how when uh, his dad said, uh, saw it in theaters in 1977 and left before the the actual ending because he thought the movie was over. He thought it just ended with the ship exploding and was like, great, time to beat the traffic and left and then found out years later that there's a whole other part of the movie. It's fantastic. It's literally like a it's like a fourth act to the movie that really puts a button on everything that Ripley had gone through before that. And it's really slow and and just claustrophobic. It's all in this really tiny ship. And it's the only time we get to see a really good look at the alien when it's sort of flinging out into space. We see how humanoid kind of creepy it is. And it shows up when she's at her most vulnerable because she is like undressed and they try to get her to be like totally nude. And Weaver is just like, no. Like the no need oh, for really? that. Okay. Yeah. Mm. I, well, I think I don't think it was Ridley Scott who was kind of asking for that. I think it was probably the producers, but I forget exactly. Yeah. Catering to the male gaze, folks. Yeah. Right. That, well, that's, that's what I was trying to get at. Is that I was, that's always good thing why it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But the vulnerability that you point out is a good point, John. That's fair. And I would just like to talk, just parse this in before we wrap up everything uh, about the epilogue to the film where she's in the escape ship. But I feel like we undervalue so much uh, Sigourney Weaver's whole performance of singing You Are My Lucky Star yes. while she's preparing yes. it's to beautiful. just kick ass it's oh my the just the tension in her voice and her face it's just yeah there's a great reason why sigourney weaver has the respect and the uh the uh, accolades that she has garnered for her career we can just see that from her first lead role fox was pretty mad at her though because uh they her and ridley scott because it was her idea to (laughs) sing that song and uh it cost fox like a ton of money (laughs) because they had to buy the rights to it copyright yeah 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 and they didn't even consider that that makes sense yeah but like ridley scott was like yeah that's perfect do that we'll figure it out later for me in terms of the whole masterpiece thing i i honestly i don't think it's like a perfect story or anything and i don't think these are perfect characters i think ripley is an awesome character i think she is like a very important character in film canon but i think if I would call this film a masterpiece, it's in terms of its imagination, its set design, its ambition. I mean, there are just entire shots of this film that are that hold up today, and that that is amazing for forty years. Uh, just like when they go into that ship, and all of the money and time and attention to detail that went into making this alien come to life, getting Giger is it, it's Giger, right? Not Geiger. Yes. Giger. Yes. Giger. Right. Giger. Yes. The, just like letting this guy go wild with the the art direction here i think it's a masterpiece in terms of its craft for sure 
And I think the mood, the atmosphere, it all just, ah, it just blends all so well together. And I guess some people would probably look at that and be like, you can't call it a masterpiece because the story isn't, you know, all that complicated or complex or layered. But I think you can sort of put things to it. Like, I, I think there are some interesting ideas here, but I understand some people who think the all of the the rape and sex allegories are a little bit too on the nose. It, it is pretty hard to watch this movie as an adult. As a kid, I just didn't notice it. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I see that Android scene where he's just getting like wiped out and that that we didn't really talk about that about that much about ash and and all of that probably because we have an ash in our mists an ashton <laughs> i was waiting for somebody to knock my head off at one of these points <laughs> <laughs> but just the revelation that he's an android it's it's such a cool twist and it's it's such a yeah. cool like you know it 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 covers up some plot holes or potential plot holes and the idea of like you'd have to be a robot to just not care about anybody on the ship right and the whole mother thing the homage to to 2001 in that way and at the same time as much as i love those practical effects and that image is what haunts me the chest the chest bursting scene is scary enough but like the the image of the head on the table yeah that is what (laughs) freaked me out and i love when they first have it and they've got this floppy fake ian holm head and then yeah. it just cuts it it's not even and it looks subtle. good it cuts the actual head yeah it's convincing because they smartly use the goop and like i i still like when i look at it and it's gross and it's like it's all spermy and like <laughs> i don't know if it's just me but like does to anybody else like the inside of him it looks like anal beads I don't know if that's what they were going for, but it's just this whole movie, guys, like they go into a literal vagina ship where the legs are spread and then they go into a womb full of eggs. And that's like where this film gets a little bit too much. It's like, it's so overt. It's so in your face. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I both appreciate it and I resent it at the same time. I mean, only Star Trek, the motion picture, I think is, has more sexual allegories than this movie as far as space, space <laughs> what about movies about Barbarella, are Will? Oh, I haven't seen Barbarella, but, um, well, do yourself I'll take a your favor word for it. and stay away. Uh, okay. First, it's actually kind of fun, but is it not good? <laughs> it is kind of fun. It's not very good though. Okay. That's fair. All right. Does anyone have any closing thoughts on Alien before we wrap up our discussion and finish out this episode? I admire its purity. <laughs> but it's not <laughs> the perfect organism. <laughs> no, yeah. All right. Well, I guess that will do it. We had a pretty thorough discussion, so I'm, I'm glad we were able to, to cover so many bases. I'm going to go into my hibernation cubicle for a couple of weeks <laughs> <for this> one. <laughs> the back yeah. the tank. I'm, I'm amped to see aliens again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Wait, one more thing. I've never noticed this before, and please let me know and be honest. If you've, if you've legitimately considered this before, have you ever noticed that, okay, so at the end, at the fake ending of the third act, right before the fourth act, Ripley says, I got you, you son of a bitch. And then in the next movie, calls the mother alien an actual yeah. bitch. I love that. I yeah. never noticed that. That's hilarious. It's actually technically correct. I noticed that this time for sure, because, well, because it was such a part part of the marketing right like the bitch is back and all that stuff and it like became a thing yeah Did they have to pay elton john that time <laughs> oh my god There's only one way to yeah. oh well <laughs> you rock it is that man. The, oh, that's the name of the song asked. right yeah okay hope i'm not misquoting elton john but well that you, you got it right so that that okay, is cool. that is our extra milestone for alien L- here, here are the movies we didn't cover once yeah. upon a time in america which uh, also celebrating an anniversary, Ghostbusters, uh, 1984, correct? 
Yep. And Gremlins, also 1984. Uh, the mm. Muppet Movie, also 1984. Oh. My word. Uh, no, that's 1979. 79. Thank you. Uh, I was like, because I was thinking, I was like, that's an 80s movie, right? And so I assumed it was 84. Oh, no. So mad that we didn't do it. I know. I know, Will Ashen. You, you can do uh, something with Matt Serafini, a uh, renowned oh, Muppet fan. Yeah. But, uh, and then also there was Tim Burton's Batman, which I think was probably the second favorite for us to talk about. That was 1989. Not good enough. Yes. Alien was the overwhelming favorite for sure. And then the, my my champion, my liege, Chinatown. <laughs> uh, I I did rewatch Chinatown, and I I absolutely loved it. And you know, I never really noticed how much Under the Silver Lake really apes from that film. I, I thought yeah. about it a little bit, but just all the stuff with water is very <laughs> very reminiscent. And so it's worth rewatching in the context of Under the Silver Lake because I was like thinking about that movie the whole time. Of course. The way the character just sort of realizes all these shady things that are going on and has no idea how to handle yeah, it. Yeah, and like and a lot of the stuff probably isn't really connected, but he makes connections yeah. out of everything. And it's just kind of, it's almost a parody. Yeah. And it works. But does it have a cameo by Orson Welles? <laughs> does it need one? All right. <laughs> Sam Nolan, let's Does finish this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, I want to mention real quick, there were a couple movies you left off just that I'll mention real quick. The Lion King, which is getting a That's very true. respectable uh, uh, 4K update next month. I'm kidding. It's getting remade. Uh, but yeah, also 25 years old, almost on the nose. So they almost got there. Isn't that great? Uh, yeah. And also uh, uh, Dead Poets Society. That was the other 89 one. Yep. Love that movie. One I want to recommend real quick is celebrating its 60th anniversary is Alain Resnais' Hiroshima Monemore, uh, which is a movie about sort of reckoning with the aftermath of World War II from multiple uh, different countries' uh, perspectives. It's very abstract and it's fantastic. It's French New Wave AF, but if you're into that thing, then that's, <laughs> that's where to go. I like that French New French Wave. New wave. <laughs> that, I want uh, that on a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, Sam is like learning all these uh, um, different phrases from pop culture now, so he's just trying to use them <laughs> in different sentences. I I tried to use hella earlier today in the group chat, and I was like begging for approval. Like I did it right. I did it right. It's hella tight. I I think um, sometime tomorrow or this weekend, I'm we're just gonna have. Sam be like, yeah, it's queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like a picture of Agnes Varda. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, Sam. But what do, mm. what do we have on deck for next month? We have to choose an extra milestone. This is our chance for the listeners to get an early sneak peek into the films we are considering. And there are quite a few for July for any, and the way it works is basically any year in the past that ends in either four or nine and came out yeah. in July <laughs> is eligible. That's how we've basically figured out how to streamline this, but what can we possibly see? I'll tell you, John, going in order of release date. So going from essentially uh, less relevant to air so, quote the public to most relevant. Uh, starting going all the way back to 1939 is Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game, uh, which is this crazy, wacky, uh, sprawling 
comedy with just this ensemble cast, all this political subtext. Um, it's not going to win, but it's. I feel that it's worth mentioning anyway. Uh, I mean, I'd be down for that one. I've, I've heard it's good. Yeah, it is. It I is, mean, I just good. watched. Uh, is that uh, remind me again who the director of that one is? Jean Renoir. Is that the? I don't know. All right, maybe I'm mixing him up with um, the Grand Illusion filmmaker. That, yep, same guy. Same guy. Okay, yeah, I just watched the Grand Illusion a couple weeks ago, so I was. Hope nice. I check out Roll of Engagement or yeah. <laughs> Roll of Engagement. He also did The River and uh, Tony Golden Couch. Uh, yeah. I forget what else. I haven't seen a lot of his lots, movies. Lots of lots of memorable stuff. Uh, and then going into 1944, celebrating 75 years, is Billy Wilder, who we've already talked about. Uh, mm. His other movie, Double Indemnity, which is one of the most iconic uh, noirs of all time. So I know John is is hankering for some indemnity, right, John? You all know I love Billy Wilder. We've already done one of his films. I love this film. I yeah. love this film. But I would understand if we wanted if we wanted to do something a little different. But still, mm. I mean, no. this is this is a, this is fantastic. And we haven't done a film from the forties yet. This is as good as it gets. Oh. Ooh. Hmm. Hmm. All righty. Up next, we got. Uh, uh, celebrating its 65th anniversary. We already did 1954 with Seven Samurai, but why not again with Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront? <gasps> yeah. yeah. That could be good. That if you're, that if you're a fan of Raging that Bull. Been, that could be a contender. That boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want it to be a contender. Uh, we haven't Will. done, a, we haven't done Marlon Brando yet. It's well, it's only a matter of time, and this could be the one because mm-hmm. this is arguably his his finest work. Uh, up next, probably not going to win, so I won't spend too much time on it. But Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder, a three hour courtroom drama where where it's it's oh, just yeah. riveting all the way through. I no, I'd it. be down for that. I love court That'd movies. Be, I could get I'd get to do my Jimmy Stewart impression, so that mm. would be fantastic. Even better. Yeah, I would I would be into it because I haven't seen this one and. You know, I haven't seen a lot of films from from that director, so interesting. Yeah, I think probably just Exodus. Now that I think about it. Oh yeah, not uh, not Laura. Haven't seen that one. <gasps> no, I haven't one. seen Laura. That's another 1944 movie. That would be cool. To oh watch. yeah, I'll have to I'll have to look at the release date on that. I think I have it on on here somewhere. Uh, anyways, also 1959, we got to move north by northwest. It's uh, has a oh, very iconic shot. Yeah. Um, Actually, I might have to put the veto on that one because I promised I'd see that one with my aunt at one point. So, well, drive to your aunt's house for the extra miles. <laughs> no. Have her on the show. Let's have Will's aunt on the show. How amazing would that be? She's too busy, I'm afraid. But no, oh, I should find a way. I mean, we have like 20 million, 20 million movies we're going to be mentioning here, so I think we can. That's nix, true. Uh, nix one of them. So, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. And we're we're gonna and plus we're gonna get to Hitchcock eventually. So. It, it, as soon as August, potentially, but that's for a later yeah. date. Moving on, celebrating 55 years is A Hard Day's Night, which look forward or, uh, to an article I'm going to write about that, or it's probably actually already out by the time uh, this debuts. There is uh, a direct reference to that movie in Yesterday, I can I tell you that much. That's true. Which is why it's relevant. There's a bunch of references. Uh, At least one like for the norms, like that would be like, oh, that's A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't really love this one. I don't think you love it either, Sam. Right? Oh, I don't love it. No, but it, it, who knows? I'm going to rewatch it, so I might change my. Mind. I guess is it is it is it's a milestone, but is it an extra milestone? I don't know. My favorite thing about Hard Day's Night is that um, 
the like perceived talent of the Beatles as far as music is the opposite of their acting skills. So like Ringo is like the best actor in the movie. And then like, uh, actually that may not work. Cause Paul's actually a de- is like, okay. As an actor, John and George are like, uh, so, so they yeah. don't care. They're, they're, right. they're artists. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. that's the thing. Right, like Sam. Paul's a little better in like help and like the later ones. But like Ringo's like definitely the best of, of the Fab Four in that movie. All right. Well, we don't want to go down a Beatles tangent for sure. So Sam, what else we got? Up next, we got a 1969 doubleheader celebrating the big 50 years. We've got Easy Rider and uh, and Midnight Cowboy. So what's going on with that? That's a huge. That's a huge couple of movies. Easy Rider is my pick because I've never seen it and I've always wanted an excuse to see it. Did it. So, and I've already seen Midnight Cowboy so many times. So I, I would say so far, Easy Rider is probably my favorite. Well, fair enough. But we've got, we've got more to go. Uh, 1974, this one's not going to win, but I wanted to put it in to, do, to have an excuse to do my Charles Bronson impression. It is Death Wish. Hey, punk. Oh, you the first make Jeff me want to puke. Oh, yeah. It's, he plays a, he plays a, a hoodlum. A Yes, yes. That's I didn't want to come right out and say sure. shit. Um, Who directed that? Michael Winner. Mm-hmm. I don't I think, know off the top right? of my head. You can look it Could up. Could be because he did. Yeah. He did. He did all the Death Wishes one, right? The the two sequels. I think at least of uh, the first three. I think he did. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Michael Winner. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that could be that could be that could be crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. He did the first three, or at least yeah, the other first three. Okay. I've I've never seen the original, so that could be interesting. Ooh. It could well, be all these could be interesting. Yeah. Uh, all right. Celebrating 30 years. And this one is my pick for a variety of reasons, partly because it's getting a lot of re-releases, uh, at least in my area. It's I know at least three theaters independently that are that are re-releasing this movie on multiple occasions. It is Spike Lee's When Harry Met do Sally. The right thing. Oh. No, John, it's do the right thing. <laughs> a movie. Oh. Spike Lee's When Harry Met Sally would be. That'd be a pretty fascinating. Uh, I would I would love to talk about Do the Right Thing. Because that would be perfect for our first eighties film. Yes. It's it's I are possibly one of the most important of the eighties, or one of and the is. Such a summer movie, like maybe the like most summery movie yeah. <laughs> I can think of off the top of my head. For July, that's brilliant. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then it's when Harry met Sally. Are you happy, Joan? A little bit. I mean, I was going to watch it anyway, but because that's, you know, that time of the month. <laughs> Pepper on my pop. What does that mean? Um, yeah. There's this whole thing where I really love Rob Reiner. And so Will and I <laughs> argue about Rob Reiner a lot. And it happens so often that, like, I have to rewatch his films. The, okay, Every couple so, times a month. <laughs> yeah. Oh, multiple times. All right. Let's, before this gets out of hand, I love <laughs> Rob Reiner. Like, I would Before say this gets out. We yeah. I'm not saying you don't love Rob Ryan. No, no, no. But like, I'm clarifying for the listeners because I don't want the wrong perception to happen here. Dude, I that think, is what I, I want. Think, I think after American <laughs> President, he stopped making good movies. And John, for some reason, is like, no, uh, flipped or whatever else he made in 2000. Alex and Emma, or any of the other forgettable movies like The Bucket List, is like, I guess, worth defending. <laughs> wow, <laughs> is that? So I don't know. I mean, that's just where we are. I mean, do you what 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 from the the two thousands has Rob Reiner made that you're like? Guys, I, I have to interrupt. How much oh. longer are we going to be going? Because I've been I, up since seven thirty. 
this this There's is seven more. this is so it goes, Will. But uh, anyway, that's the uh, only, that's all I have to say about that. You really gonna defend so it goes? Anyway, so sorry, yeah, Sam, sorry, sorry. what's left? <laughs> I'd, I'd love to. 1994, 25 years. We got a couple of movies. One of my favorites of the 90s is Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express. I would love more than anything oh, to be able yeah. to talk about that movie. That'd be great. It's brilliant. And you know it. You might love it, actually. It's it's not entirely clear all the time. But Robert Zemeckis' Forrest Gump, one of the most iconic movies of the 90s, for sure. Uh, speaking of iconic and 90s, 1999, the year I was born the year of our lord is the blair witch project which was which was uh more important than maybe we uh we realize uh some of the time um as well as the iron giant which <gasps> i've had an interest oh my god yeah that would be I'm, cool i love that movie so that much be, definitely be down for iron giant as well i will throw down my life for the Iron Giant, <laughs> anytime. That's like the only '90s movie we've we've mentioned so far this year that I'm like, that's an extra milestone for sure. Yeah. Oh God. And then so our our final option is Stanley Kubrick's final swan song, Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh. Oh, nah. no, what? Wait, what? That's no, not, no way. Uh, what do you mean, John? <laughs> yeah, John. I don't want to see that. As an, it's not an extra milestone. It's like it's a curiosity at best. Oh, you think you're so much better than it's Stanley like, Kubrick, John uh, Grant? No, but it's not really. He didn't get to finish it, so it's it's kind of right. a mess. We already missed Doctor Strangelove because that yeah. celebrated its anniversary. Yeah, well, I, I I was bummed about that. I'm I'm not as bummed about that one, but it's a great movie. But I mean, of the Stanley Kubricks we could have done, that's not the one I'm most disappointed. But Sure. We will we will keep this debate going off the air. Wait, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep this longer, but not Pulp Fiction or uh, uh, Shawshank. Uh, that's not till that's not for several months. No, that's '94. Yes, but not for several months. Not oh, several 90, months. Yeah. oh, several months. Uh, my bad. I'm sorry. It's late. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> uh, so far, I'm leaning toward Easy Rider. Sounds like Julia. You you seem to react to Double Indemnity and Iron Giant. I do the opposite ends of the spectrum of cinema. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> totally different movies. Uh Will, is anything sticking out for you? Uh yeah, similar to you, Easy Rider definitely is one I've been meaning to see for a long time. But um yeah, I mean there's a lot of here that I'd really want to see or rewatch. Okay. And Sam, what what's what's the one? What what does your heart tell you? I'm not I can't decide on one, so I'll give three. I'm going with on the waterfront, uh do the right thing or chunking express. I would love to talk about any one of those. Yeah, do the do the right thing definitely sticks out for me as well. But help mm-hmm. us decide, dear listeners. We'll be giving you all of these options in this format, and you can vote in various ways. Easiest way to do it is just go to cinemaholics.com, uh, find this extra milestone episode, and let us know in the comments what do you want us to talk about next month. And thanks as always for listening and checking out this episode of Alien. With that, we've got to get out of here. We'll see you on the main show this coming week. And we'll be talking about whatever it is we're going to be talking about, depending on when you're listening to this. Mm. Uh, so from the Internet California, I am John Agroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Lash. From the Internet Colorado, I'm Sam Nolan. From the Internet Nostromo, heading straight into my hypersleep chamber, I'm Julia Tatey. <laughs> See you next time. Oh, we forgot to mention the Nostromo's based on the novel. And oh, that's such a cool thing, too. But we barely talked about Ash anyway, so. And tweet it.